0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Um, Please join me in prayer to our God. Father, God in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that we can come here and worship and sing to you, acknowledging how wonderful you are, how great you are, acknowledging your splendid, amazing character. And God, I, in light of that, I see who I am and we see, all of us, who we are. And we come, Lord, asking Your forgiveness, asking Your help in this life, asking Your grace to be continually given to us. God, we need grace every minute of, of every day. We need grace upon grace, God, and thank you so much that you give it, that you've given it in Christ Jesus on the cross. And Lord, um, in light of that, I pray that your gospel would continue to go out with power, that we would continue to spread the word, that your kingdom is coming and we can be thankful and grateful knowing that's the case. And so we pray for Pastor Thomas this afternoon, I mean this morning, as he's preaching on missions, God, as he's preaching to those people uh, on the gospel going out, spreading to the nations, Lord, and I pray for all of our Arbinet missionaries. I pray for Tiago Oliveira and his family. I do pray that the work and the effort of everyone in this church would not go unnoticed that it would bear fruit in the world in the prayer of us and our, as, as saints praying to you, but also just in giving and in supporting people who are out there working and proclaiming the word. And God, we also just thank you uh, this day that we live in a peaceful place where we can come and worship, that we live in a country that is stable enough at the moment to worship you and come here and do this. We pray for the government of this country, Lord. Whether or not we agree or disagree with things that they're doing, the Word proclaims that we need to pray for them. So we all in this moment together pray for our, go- our government and this country. That you would cause it to prosper, and especially that you would cause the government to enforce what is right and do what is good. Lord, I pray for the state government and the city government as well. And I just pray that you would be gracious to us, be gracious to this community, and give good leaders and remove any corruption, any deceit, any inequity from, gov- from the government's mentality, Lord. Uh, God, I do pray... For this church, I pray that you continue to make it strong that the word preached, that the word studied, that the word proclaimed in families would continue to bear fruit. And that we'd see a revival and an an encouraging growth in your kingdom, even just here among us. And we we thank you for all the progress and the sanctification and the wonders that we've been able to see already in this church here. And God, uh, I do pray for all of our material needs, that we would be trusting in You and thankfully and gratefully leaning on You for everything You've supplied. That we'd be people marked by gratitude, people marked by generosity, people marked by love. And Lord, I also pray for this time when the Word is preached. I pray that we'd have ears to hear. I pray that we would have eyes to see, O God that we would know how important this moment is and how serious this is God that we'd receive it with humility and joy and that you'd be glorified that your spirit would come and help us God without your spirit there's no there's no hope there's no reason for any of this we need help we need your help to understand the word We need your help to live out the word. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So the sermon this morning, the text is Psalm 32. So please turn to Psalm 32. And uh, in the meantime, I'll give a little bit of context before I get into actually reading it. Um, So this this passage pertains to, without any exaggeration one of the most important things that you can ever understand as a human being. No exaggeration there at all. And that is the biblical doctrine of justification. If you don't understand this, you don't understand much. And so you might be asking, what is justification? So justification is the answer to this great dilemma that we have as people. Uh, Seth kind of touched on it. We touch on it a lot. It's the gospel. It's the message that this dilemma of how can a sinful man like you or like me stand before God? It's an answer to that question. It's an answer to the question of how can God be both just, so in other words, hating sin and hating wickedness, but also the justifier of the ungodly. How can those two things be true? How can God be a truly just and equal ruler who's going to set everything straight in the end, but then at the same time, how can He let people like you and me come here today to worship Him, come into His presence to eventually live eternally with Him. It's a great dilemma. And that's why this doctrine of justification is so important. And that's why it hits so close to home, so close to the very center of the Christian message, very center of the Christian gospel. It's Got other doctrines. There's other doctrines in the Bible that are at least equally important that you need to understand in order to understand this one, for sure. Not going to minimize that. But as a human being, a sinful human being, there's very little things, very few things, that you need to understand more than this. The doctrine of justification. So how do I know that this passage from this morning is actually about justification? How can you pass my water? I took it down. <laughs> a sec, I just want to... I just want to make sure that I actually uh, want to make sure I actually can talk to you guys for the whole time. <laughs> okay, so how do I know this passage is actually about justification? Well, I know that because when Paul, remember you're talking about the Pauline Psalms this morning, when Paul is quoting this passage, that's in the context of him explaining justification, explaining how can a man, how can a human man, be made right before God. And, make, and he takes great measures to point out that it's apart from his own works. It's apart from any of his own doings. And so I'm going to read a little bit of that part where he quotes this psalm, the beginning, the first two word, verses. And then after that, I'm going to go in and start reading it for us. So in Romans 4, verse 4 through 8, Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. At this point, Paul stops and he goes and he says, now I'm going to explain and add in a description here, straight from this psalm, of what the life of a justified person is like. So he says, Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. David there, Paul's quoting David and saying this is a description, what we're about to read, of a man who has been justified, a man who's been made right before God. And so let's read the word together. Look with me at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, a psalm of David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, and through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And so if we look at verse 1 and 2 there, where David uh, is describing, and Paul says he's describing the state of a justified man, we see that the psalm begins that way. It's a statement of fact. A justified person is... What is a justified person? A justified person is a person who is blessed. Blessed can also be translated happy. A justified person is a person who is blessed, happy, Joyful, And why? Because their transgression is forgiven. Because their sins are covered. Because their iniquity is taken away. Their iniquity is not imputed to them. And so the question then is, well, what's this actual doctrine then? What is the doctrine of justification? How does someone end up there? And the answer is, they definitely do not end up there by works. They definitely don't. And the reason I know that is because first of all, in Exodus 34 verse 7, God tells us outright when He's describing His own nature and character. He says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And the man who's here described as justified is in fact guilty. Three different ways sin is described. Three different ways. It says, It is sin, lawless deeds, and iniquity. You see that? My transgression, my lawless deeds, my sin, my iniquity is covered. All of these different ways are the ways that his sin is described. And so he's clearly not getting to to be justified by works. He's a lawless, wicked person. He doesn't deserve that. But how is he then justified? And the answer is, like Paul said, it's because God is the God who justifies the ungodly. Our God is a God who justifies the ungodly. And so... There's no actual better place in Scripture where this doctrine of the fact that God is a God who justifies the ungodly and this doctrine of justification is outlined than in 2 Corinthians 5. It says there, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He, that is God, made Him who knew no sin, that is Jesus Christ, that's the perfect God-man, that's our representative, to be sin for us. Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So this is the doctrine of justification. The most important thing you can understand this morning. There's a great exchange that's taken place. Our sin and wickedness that we bring to the table is put on Christ and the wrath of God is poured out onto Him. And not only that, that would already be amazing, but His goodness is given to us. His goodness and His gloriousness is given to us. His perfect life is attributed as if it was ours. The great exchange that happens that allows a man to stand in this status of verse 1 and 2 justified, blessed, joyful, and happy. So now we've solved the major dilemma. We know how a man can actually come before a holy God. But now we have a different problem. A lot of us actually know this doctrine already, and you're probably testing, seeing, is there going to explain it properly? You probably know this doctrine, but there's a new problem here. There's a massive difference between understanding what it is, being able to say it in words, and believing it even, and even having been saved by it, and living as if it's true. A massive difference there. And thankfully, this psalm starts out with this statement of this blessed, justified person's status, and then it moves through. And it explains what the life of a person who's justified is like. What are some things that a justified person does in their life that allows them to live joyfully in light of that? To live a full Christian life in, front, in light of their justification. So this morning I exhort you, brothers and sisters, live joyfully in light of your justification because of honest confession, in prayerful protection, and in humble instruction. So, with the first point, let's look at honest confession. Live joyfully in light of your justification, brothers and sisters, because of honest confession. Let's read verses 3 and 5 in order to show that. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So here we clearly realize in verses 3 and 4 the crucial importance of honest confession in the Christian life if we're ever going to live in a joyful and proper standing before God. Let's read those. When I grew silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So the psalm is here describing this feeling of drought, this feeling of dryness, this feeling of terrible summer um, heat burning on them, and it's because they have not confessed to God, it's because they have not come clear to God. They have not been living in a life of confession to God. It says that he kept silent. The reason for his predicament is that he kept silent. He did not come to God and communicate with Him. He didn't want to open up and, and confess his sin to God. And so that, that state, if you're a Christian, you've been there. I'm sure you've felt this before. When you've done something you know is wrong, but you don't want to confess your sin to God. And what that feeling is, is this feeling of heaviness. It's a feeling of burdensomeness. It's a feeling that the conviction, the heavy weight of sin is all around you. And it's miserable. It's Not a good feeling. And the foolishness of this, and the reason why this is a really bad way to live, and why it doesn't allow you to live joyfully in light of your justification, is because you're basically not going to the one person who's able to relieve you. You're not... Going to Him to lift you, to help you, to revive you day by day with the problem you're having. So this is so foolish because really, if you think about it, to deny your sinfulness, try to hide it, to not confess your sin, to not be bold with God and open and come to Him and confess your sin as a justified person is actually to just treat the whole thing as if you don't even have a Savior. It's to treat it as if you don't need it. It's to treat Him as if He's not your Savior. And it kind of—it doesn't cut you off fully, but it kind of cuts you off from the life of fullness and joy that you could be living in light of your justification if you do not confess your sin to God. And it's really sad, really, if you think about it. Our minds are so corrupt, really, that we can actually trick our mind and our heart into thinking we could hide something from the God who made our mind and our heart. Think about how outrageous that is. Think about how we live. Sometimes we hide our sin from God. We think we can hide. The all-knowing, all-seeing eye of God can know every single thought you've ever done, every single thing you've ever participated in, or anything, or any shameful thing that you want to hide. And so something that I want to be careful with is I don't want to leave you with the impression that every moment of sadness and sorrow or dryness in the Christian life is just a result of not having confessed enough sin. Because that could lead you down a pretty serious spiral of constantly being like too scrupulous with yourself. But what I do want to do is I want to absolutely embrace the weight that the passage gives. I want to absolutely embrace this morning the weight and the call that it's giving us. It's saying and directly commanding us that if we want to experience the joy of justification and renewal, then it is a matter of looking to the grace that God has for us in Christ. It's a matter of looking to the cross, and it's a matter of confessing your sin. You're hiding away from God and not drawing near to Him. You will not experience the joy of your justification. It's impossible. And the fact of the matter is that many of us, many of you, have some sins in your life that you're harboring. Sins in your life that you're not eager to bring to God. You're not eager to draw near. And this is why. It's because you think that if you come to Him, He will not receive you. So the great God I described earlier when I defined the doctrine of justification is a God of love, a God of forgiveness, and a God of grace. But you've somehow flipped it in your mind if you're that person right now, hiding from God. You've somehow flipped it in your mind and you've made it so that He's not that God. He's not a God who receives sinners. He's not a God who receives the wicked and allows them to come to him in open, honest confession and receive forgiveness. You've made a picture in your mind of a God who's cruel, of a God who's unloving, of a God who's ungracious. But that's that's a surefire way to be miserable as a justified person. As a true Christian, you're walking around day by day hiding your sin and looking at God like He's cruel, like He's not on your side Like He's not going to receive you if you live a life of pure openness to Him in prayer. I can't even think of a more miserable way to live. That's the most miserable state of mind you could ever be in. But this morning, it's very important that we hear this message from the psalm. And we see that if we're in that state of mind, if we're in that state of affairs where we've twisted it and got it all mixed up and we're all out of whack and our heart is like the dust of the summer... We can read verse 5 and see that God is in fact a forgiving God. He is in fact a gracious God and a loving God. And so let's read it together. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So instead of staying silent, the psalmist here has opened his mouth and he's proclaimed his sin to God. He's prayed to God and said, Lord, forgive me. And God, sure enough, forgave him of his sin. And this is an Old Testament verse that's very reminiscent of a very famous New Testament verse that you guys could probably say along with me. First John 1, nine: if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joy-bringing promise that is. For someone who's living with this wrong view of who God is. Someone who's not living in confession. It's such a joy-bringing promise because we can come to Him and we can confess our sins and we will receive forgiveness. The only thing we need to consider now is this word I said. I said you can live joyfully in light of your justification by honest confession. So not just any confession, but it has to be honest. It has to be real. It has to be from your heart. That's why I added this word, honest. And so I think the way that we should think about this is that it's not just a matter of going through the motions. It's not just a matter of saying the right words. If it was just a matter of saying, God, I've done X. Like, everyone knows that. You know, everyone knows that you've done X. It's a matter of agreeing with God that X was horrible. That's where the heart comes in, right? That's where the honest aspect of our confession comes in. Because we have to agree with God how horrible our sin actually is. Not just acknowledge that it is a sin. We need to have a heart after God. And so this is actually where we see in verse 2, you know how it says, after all this mention of how much iniquity and transgression and sin the man has, the justified man, it says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Which is confusing, of course, because you just finished mentioning how much iniquity and sin he had, you'd think he'd be filled with deceit. But that's not the case. The thing that's made him to be a person with a heart that's in line with God, a heart that is honest, and a confession that is honest is the fact that he agrees with God that he has transgression, that he has sin. And so, in that sense, our church body should never be a bunch of people who think they're so great. We can never be that. If we are that, then we're failing. What it should be is a bunch of people who acknowledge, who have a heart that's in agreement with God. No, I am this man, I fail regularly but I come to God and I receive forgiveness. So this leads us to another great dilemma, which is this. Okay, I acknowledge that, and I see all the sin in my life, and I acknowledge that I need to confess, but I can't stir up a heart that's in right line with what God wants. I can't stir up a heart that's honestly confessing, and even if I did, how would I know if I was being honest enough? How could I ever know? The dilemma here is that we need a heart that more and more agrees with God, and so what we should do is we should pray to Him. And in our Christian experience, we can be joyfully filled up because we'll actually see if we're a Christian and we pray to God, God, give me a heart that more and more wants to do Your will, that more and more agrees that my sin is evil, that more and more goes along with Your plan for the world. Then we get to see and find joy in the fact that He does, in fact, answer that prayer. And not only that, not only praying that, but also another thing you need to do is you need to think about your sin not just as a legal uh, violation, but think of it as a punishing violation that Jesus Christ, because of the doctrine of justification, has been punished for. Think about the shame that He underwent. You're ashamed of your sin? Think about the shame that He must have felt. He's God. He's perfect. He's perfect. And he got beaten by men, sinful men, terrible men like us. And he got hung on a tree. And he suffered for that very sin. And if that does not stir our heart to hate our sin more, if that does not stir our heart to want to be honest and open with our God, because he's such a loving God that he would do that for us, then we need help. But we need to pray that he would help us. And we need to pray. That that reality would become more and more and more an active aspect in our life. And that we meditate on the cross to expand our heart in that sense. To be honest before God. And so we've seen that we can live joyfully in light of our justification. And it's a beautiful thing. By by honest confession. And now we must also see that we can do so in prayerful protection. In prayerful protection. Let's read verses 6 and 7. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near you. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. You see right away here, the beginning in verse 6, that a justified person is joyful because they're in close prayerful communion with God. And how does this take place? You see that? It says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. It's important to realize the first couple words there. It says, For this cause. That in other translations is because of this, or therefore, or for this. So whatever came before is what caused this person to be prayerful. is what caused this person to draw near and to want to be in a life of communion and relationship with God. Not a distant and... uh, Detached life from God. Not a life that's filled with sorrow as in not living in the refreshment of God's Spirit in communion and prayer. No, they draw near here in prayer because of what? It says, For this cause, because they are, verse 1 and 2, a justified person. And because verse 3 and 5, they're living confessionally, honestly before God. Their conscience is clear before God. They can draw near to God because they're justified. Because of the gospel, they can draw near to God and experience His relief. And so the word here for godly is an indication that we should look at very seriously. Remember that Paul said that God is the God who justifies the ungodly? Well, this man who's here found praying, he's the godly man. It says, he is godly, and therefore he shall pray to God. So he's been transformed. He's been made new. And this place of communion, this place of prayer, is a great source of of protection. It's a great source of strength and endurance for us as believers. And in that sense, it's a huge key for us to live joyfully. How could you expect to live joyfully in light of your justification in the absence of this act of spending time in prayer with God? So prayerful. That's the prayerful aspect of prayer the protection. We need to pray to God and live in communion and closeness with Him so that we are protected. But the second aspect is very important as well. It says in the second part of verse 6, Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near Him. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near Him. And So here we see that a justified person's joyfulness in light of their justification comes as a result of their protection from judgment. And from calamity. Now that might not seem abundantly or immediately clear to us, right? We're reading this verse about a flood water, and we don't see how does that how does that relate to judgment and calamity and the wrath of God. Well, that's why it's so important that we read the Bible as a whole book. Right? That's why it's so important that we don't just pick a certain psalm out or a certain passage out. It's so crucial that we pick out, that we realize that... Um, the back the stories in the Old Testament have informed this psalm. David did not write this in absence from that reality, from the things that we've read earlier in the book. So we know that in the days of Noah, you see here about the flood waters, in the days of Noah, God's wrath and judgment were poured out on the earth. That water there is not just any old water, it's a water of wrath and judgment, because in the days of Noah, the flood waters were poured out to wipe out all the iniquity on earth. And in the days of Moses, you remember the Egyptian army was wiped away by the Red Sea? Again, it was an act of God's judgment for the people who were not with Him and an act of deliverance, an act of protection for the people who were saved by His grace. The people who were lifted up, for instance, like Noah in the ark, lifted up above those waters of judgment. And so in this psalm, we see that too. The floodwaters will not come near Him This man who's been justified. And so this teaches us a great lesson. It shows us a very important aspect of living joyfully in light of our justification. It's so important because it shows us the important place of realizing what we've been saved from in order to be joyful. You cannot be joyful if you don't realize the wrath and the judgment that you've been lifted out from. The floodwaters will not come near us, church. The floodwaters of wrath and terror will not come near us if we're in Christ, if we're justified and in right standing with Him. Like Noah and like Moses, the thankfulness that they experienced when they were delivered from the floodwaters, that should be the joy that's produced in us when we contemplate where we came from and what we deserve, but what we've been snatched out of, what we've been saved from. That's why it's so, so important that if you ever go to a different church than this one, you need to go to a church where the gospel is being proclaimed faithfully not only as an encouragement tool, but also they have to talk about sin. They have to talk about guilt. And those things, some preachers, I've heard people talk on whatever, YouTube or wherever, some preachers say, no, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, so I don't talk about hell. I don't talk about wrath. I don't talk about anything difficult. I don't talk about these harder topics to to breach. But I'll tell you this all that that pastor is doing is stealing happiness and joy from real Christians. That's all he's doing. He's stealing their joyful living in light of their justification. Because what I'm doing right now is I'm telling you, you deserve to be under the water, you deserve to be lower. You do not deserve to be in the ark. You do not deserve to be lifted out of those floodwaters by your justification in Christ. But how joyful does it make you that because of that great exchange that I described earlier, you have this chance. Like that should be something that just fills us and makes us joyful in light of our justification. And as we know, David uses flood imagery because of what happened in the past before his lifetime. But here, we also realize in Scripture that there's something way worse than a flood coming. There's something way worse than a flood coming. In Acts 17.31, it says, He, God, has set a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness. So the justified person knows that that day is coming and they know that they deserve judgment. They know that they deserve wrath. But yet they rejoice because what what do we receive? We receive so much. We receive eternal life. We receive forgiveness. We receive righteousness. Infinitely, infinite blessing. The flood waters will not reach us. And not only that, not only is all of that that I just said true, but it's also certain. See again that verse. Surely, it says, Surely in a flood of great waters. And it says, They shall not come near him. So the flood will not reach him. So it's certain. Our salvation, because of the doctrine of justification, is certain. And if our salvation is certain, rock solid, then we can have certainty in it. What greater cause for joy? And it's, and it's rooted, that certainty is rooted in the God who saved us. Not in our own obedience, but in the God who saved us from this great judgment and this great calamity. And next we'll notice again in the next verse. That this joy creating protection from judgment and calamity is also tied to God being our hiding place, our preservation, and our deliverance. So in verse 7, it says, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Again, it's just more full, more rich imagery of God's protection. It's the glorious grace and the goodness that we receive because of justification, because of our standing before God and because of what Christ has accomplished. So I want to focus in for a second as this will bring us closer to our daily life, closer to our everyday church life when I dial it in on the fact that a justified person is joyful because they are surrounded by shouts or by songs of deliverance. At the end there it says, you shall be surrounded with songs of deliverance. Other translations say shouts of deliverance. So what does this have to do with living joyfully in light of your justification? It has a great deal, actually, scripturally to do with that. And what is a song of deliverance? song of deliverance would be like the song that Moses and Israel sang in Exodus 15, right after the, they just witnessed this great act of deliverance, when the floodwaters came and wiped away Pharaoh's armies. These are songs that speak about how great God is in his salvation. Great and powerful and amazing He is. And then it talks about the thankfulness and the joy that we receive as those who've received that salvation. And who've got to witness it. Who've been a part of it. And who, for whom it's ministered to us personally. And so in that sense, a song of deliverance is actually exactly what we sing. Songs of deliverance are the songs that we come and gather to sing in the church. It says the justified are surrounded by songs of deliverance. So every Sunday, we sing songs that speak fully and honestly and frankly about our sin, right? We, we sing them. And we sing, I was a wretch. I was a sinner. I deserve none of this goodness and grace. But then we start to sing about God. We sing about His magnificent grace. We sing about His magnificent gospel. We sing about the fact that He lifts us up. He saves us. He delivers us. So Those are songs of deliverance. And the spirit of singing a song of deliverance, the spirit of this whole act of singing in the Bible and that should be marking a joyfully justified person is a spirit of thankfulness. Thankfulness. So I've already touched on that. I've been hammering that home for a while now, but thankfulness should be marking it. And how do I know that? Well, let's read Colossians 3, verse 15 to 17. That's what uh, Hal will be preaching on soon-ish. It says, just look at how much thankfulness and gratitude is in this. This is the most famous passage probably about singing in the Bible. It says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body. And it says, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. And then it says, singing with grace Other translations say gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so this spirit of thankfulness is so crucial to living joyfully in light of your justification. Not only is that crucial, but singing is also crucial. Embracing these songs of deliverance and reminding ourselves about the truths of who God is. So I want to tell you this morning. If your concern about the government. Or your concern about your own sin. Or your concern about anything has taken center stage. Over your concern about being thankful for what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. On what he's done in justifying us. Well then you should be totally unsurprised if you're not filled with joy. You should be totally unsurprised if you're not living in the joyfulness of our, set, of our justification that we receive because of what he did. But if we fix our eyes, and hopefully what I'm preaching is already reminding you of how much you have to be grateful for. If you're sitting there thinking, I don't have anything to be thankful for, to sing about, well, maybe your circumstances are terrible. That's true. Your circumstances might be absolutely horrid. But you can still say, I'm justified. You can still say, I'm floating in an ark above the waters of judgment and calamity, and hell will never reach me? That's good news. That will make you joyful, brothers and sisters. So we've seen that we can live joyfully in light of our justification, by humble confession and prayerful protection. So now let's see that we must also do so by humble instruction. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So Immediately we notice there that joy comes from seeing God is the teacher. I don't know if you noticed that, but all of a sudden God grabbed the microphone here in verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you. It's not David anymore. It's I, God speaking, saying, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. So God is our teacher, already a tremendous source for joy. We look to the New Testament for more evidence that this is true, that God will directly teach his justified saints, directly teach his justified people. We read in John 6, 45, and Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So if you lack wisdom this morning, if you lack wisdom and you keep falling into sin and you feel the Lord is distant and you don't know how to make sense out of anything in your life and you are stuck in folly and misery, why not come to the greatest teacher that's ever lived? The greatest teacher of all time to be your all-wise teacher and guide. He says that if you lack wisdom, you can ask Him and He'll give you freely. He'll give you wisdom. And He even says here, upon the authority of His own inerrant word, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, I will guide you with my eye. That is a great source of joy for us, brothers and sisters. You might feel intimidated in this world. You might feel intimidated by all the PhDs out there, or the people telling you things on the news, or everybody who thinks they're smarter than everyone else, or the people who think if you make one mistake, then you're out, you're cut, you're canceled. Those people might intimidate you, make you nervous. You don't know, what if I don't know the right things to say? Or what if I accidentally offend somebody? Your knowledge is limited, and you might feel that. You might know that, and you're aware of that. And I'm very keenly aware of that every day. But the promise here that brings us great joy in light of our justification is that God, the all-wise God, is our teacher. He actually knows all things, and He's given us access to the Word He's given us access by His Spirit. He's anointed us. And so we need to come to that Word daily to be instructed, to be taught. So we also see that joy comes from being humble and submissive. In verse 9, it talks about, If you want joyful instruction, you must not be like a horse or like a mule. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. So this mule is a picture of pure stubbornness, a picture of isolation, a picture of foolishness. We don't maybe understand that picture very well. I don't think because we don't live in a farm agricultural society as much as in the past. Some of you might be aware of this. I've seen it a few times, but it's really comical actually. A mule will literally lock its knees out and stand dead fast and not move a muscle sometimes when it decides that's what it's going to do. And it will do that until you literally grab it and force it to do what you want it to do. You literally have to force it. So what this passage is saying is, come to the great teacher. Set yourself bare before Him and He will teach you. Be submissive and humble before Him. Do not allow yourself to be like someone that must be forced. If you're justified, if you're in Christ, God will force you. He will beat you into submission and put you on the right track. I can tell you that for a fact. But why not humbly this morning, submissively this morning, come to Him. Open up your Bibles. Hear and learn from Him. And that will bring you great joy in light of your justification, knowing that you can be taught by God. So joy also comes In that sense, from understanding. Not being like a mule or a horse, but receiving understanding. In verse 9, it says, "...do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding." In verse 9. So how do we relate this to the rest of Scripture? Well, there's this verse that we all know throughout Scripture. Very well known. It says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding." So, we understand that what that really means is that the beginning of understanding, the beginning of real wisdom, the beginning of our Christian life, where we can begin to be taught by God and led by God, is the moment that we believe. It's the moment that we believe the gospel and put our trust in Jesus Christ. It's the moment that we're justified. And the beauty of that is that in that moment that we're justified, we receive a new heart. A new heart is given to us, and Pastor Thomas mentions this all the time. He says, you can't do what I'm preaching you to do if you don't have a new heart, if you don't believe, if you haven't trusted and been justified. But when you do, I trust that you will know that you do, and it will be assured to you, and that even if you feel like your heart is condemning you, that in time, if you step in and open the Word and listen to preaching that's sound, you'll come to know that you do have a new heart. And the the distinctive mark of a new heart is that it's a heart, not like a mule, not a stubborn heart, but it's a heart that loves to do, it's a heart that loves to do what God's law says. It's not a matter of, I have to, it's a matter of, I get to. It's a matter of, I want to. It's a matter of, I like to. That's what a heart that's new before God is. And it's a wonderfully joy-giving experience. When you realize, man, every day when I read the word, I want to be better. I want to do this. I want to be made new. But a word of warning too is that you can absolutely be justified. You can absolutely be a real Christian and start to wander back into your old mulish habits, your old horse-like ways, right? And in that sense, I think, it's very important that we remember that man earlier in the way. That man was a man with... Dry bones who was heavy and who was dried up and didn't have the joy of his justification earlier in the passage that we discussed. But that man needed to open up and confess to God, run back to God. And so I pray that we would be quick to run back to God and receive renewal and revival in there and be set back into the joyful living of our justification. And so we've seen that we can live joyfully in light of our justification by honest confession, by prayerful protection, and by humble instruction. And now to conclude, I just want to say this, that we need to read these last two verses and pull out the final thing because we've actually built this thing. We've, we've gone verse 1 and 2 where there's this state of fact, which is a justified man and the, and the uh uh, disposition and situation that that man is in. We've walked through his ways and his habits in life that actually allow him to live joyfully in light of his justification. And now we see again in verse 11, this climax of joy again. This climax of all of this has led towards a joyful and upright life. So Let's read those verses. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So There's a comparison here, and there's a very solemn and serious warning that David does not exclude from the psalm. And so it would be foolish of me to exclude it here. He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. So he's saying that the life of a wicked person, even if to our eyes in this life, it seems like it's not sorrow, the life of a wicked person is pure sorrow. In this life, their decisions, when they don't submit, when they're not humble, when they don't confess, is going to lead them further away from the Lord and ultimately going to result in a lot of hurt in this life. A lot of issues in this life, a lot of the time. But something that's way more important than how that sorrow is going to be manifold in this life is the fact that there will be infinite sorrow of the worst possible kind in the next life to come. So you think of the worst forms of misery, the worst isolation, complete absence from God's grace and His steadfast love. That's what there is in the future for people who do not come. That's what there is in the future for people who do not come and become justified through the grace of Jesus Christ. Infinite sorrow. But, it's great to see in Scripture that there is a man of sorrows who offered himself on the cross. And in like in verse 6 where it says, in a time when you may be found. We're still in that time today. We're in the time when he may be found. The man of sorrows is calling out. The Gospel is going out across the nations. We know this in our church. We know that it's being proclaimed here this morning. And if you're not yet in there, and you're that wicked man who lives his life not for God, not for His kingdom, but for yourself, and you can see this sorrowful life is on your way, and you don't experience the joy of justification at all, then come to Him. Come to Him this morning and become like the man in the second half of verse 10. He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Seth talked about this this morning. But the mercy that it's talking about there is steadfast love. The mercy is his covenant love. That eternal, infinite, amazing love that we have to look forward to, the, the one that lifted us up out of the flood waters. That is the love that we're able to receive by being justified in Christ Jesus. And so come. Come this morning. And if you're this wandering saint, also come. Also come, look to Christ for what He is. He's a God of forgiveness. Our God is a God of love and mercy, a God who justifies the ungodly. Those are His trademarks. Come to Him. Come to Him and receive food. He says that to all who hunger and thirst, you can come to Him and you can live joyfully. You can find sustenance. You can find a joyful standing in light of justification in Christ. And so as we go on now with that call on our hearts to draw near again to God and He will draw near to us to come near again to God and receive revitalization. We know that we can leave and we can sing after this songs of deliverance. We can sing and be filled with joy. It says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So we have that to hope for. And now we've heard we don't just need to understand the doctrine of justification as a matter of principle, just as a matter of fact, which many people don't. I think you should understand it, and it's very important. But we also need to live joyful, God-honoring lives in light of it by honest confession and prayerful protection and humble instruction, too. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, we do thank You so much for Your Word that so clearly and so simply explains to us how we can live a joyful life in Your sight. It's not a mystery to us anymore, God. We can go forth in this week, and we're thankful for it, with hearts that are willing and eager to obey You. Hearts that are filled with thankfulness because of what we've been saved from. So, Lord, I pray that you would just bless us this week, bless us going forward, and continue to glorify your name here in this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.